Hey everybody, what's going on today? I am going to try to keep this introduction short because we've got a lot of ground to cover in this episode. Uh, before we get started, one quick announcement. For some reason, uh, when I originally posted the last episode, the audio cut out in the last few minutes, and if you were intently listening, like I know you all were, it was kind of on a cliffhanger, but thankfully... Uh, one of you beautiful listeners told me about the problem, so if the audio cut on you, please know it's been fixed, and you can go back and listen to the whole episode. And of course, a big thanks to Magnified for telling me about the problem. With that being said, ooh, look at this segue. In this episode, we're going to be continuing our journey with Hermeticism. If you didn't listen to part one of the series, don't worry about it. We'll do a quick overview before we get the ball rolling today. But uh, I'm going to encourage you to go back and listen to that episode first because it kind of helps frame up everything for today. And who in their right mind would miss another opportunity to listen to my sexy, smooth voice? It's like butter. Butter. Butter on hot bread. It's like butter. So in today's episode, we will be picking up where we left off, and we will continue our journey through the history and development of Hermeticism, and examine the high points from the end of the Renaissance right up into the present day. Oh boy. Just to let you know, before I let you down, I'm holding on to the philosophies, beliefs, and practices of Hermeticism until part three. So... If you were looking forward to that today, you have to wait to one more episode. This is like a, this whole subject has been so huge and it's just been so interesting to read. I, I really, it's easy to get off track. Um, uh, so, uh, part three is going to wrap up the series with a nice, pretty little bow. All right, friends, here we go. This is Hermeticism part two. We gon' figure it out It's time to figure it out At least we're gonna try anyway Here we go So, to kick things off Let's do a quick recap of part one So, Hermeticism is like this religion And philosophy and lifestyle That was developed in the first century and it's not a set of moral rules and regulations, and there's not really a, an official structure or leadership to the religion. Um, it in, Hermeticism, it encourages its followers to kind of find their own way and pave their own path to God and to the great beyond. And they want to try to interact with, um, you know, God in spiritual dimensions in real scientific ways. So Hermetics, they use like rituals that are kind of, identified as reliable ways to interact with spiritual dimensions. And those rituals include, uh, well, maybe not rituals, but their methods include astrology, alchemy, and magic rituals. And so I should probably say this too, because I, I often use hermeticism in the occult kind of interchangeably in this episode, because hermeticism is really the foundation for a lot of occult practices. So if you hear me use those two interchangeably, that's why. So, Hermeticism got started in the first century in Alexandria, Egypt. Its head figure is this guy named Hermes Trismegistus, who is speculated to be a fictional character, but it really depends on who you ask. Um, it's believed that Hermes Trismegistus was really a combination um, formed from this cultural fusion that was happening in Egypt, and it's he's a combination of the Greek god Hermes and the Egyptian god Thoth, put together 
by this matchup of cultures that was kind of going on at the time. Uh, Hermeticism was outlawed and its followers were persecuted in the 4th century when Christianity became the official religion of Rome. When Christianity becomes official for Rome, everybody else is kind of screwed. Fortunately, Hermeticism was preserved in the Islamic Caliphates and in the libraries of Byzantium. Hermeticism and other mystic and esoteric ideas were revised during the Renaissance thanks to the Medici family and a translating priest and a philosopher playboy by the name of Giovanni Picodella Mirandola. Giovanni published this book at the time called The Oration on the Dignity of Man that argued for hermetic, mystic, and scientific practices, and he pushed that each religion is really just a different interpretation of the same God, and it was pretty radical at the time. But of course, the Catholic Church was not having any of it, and they shut Giovanni and his whole little movement down. But he had already published his book, and the cat was out of the bag, and that brings us to part two. So, Giovanni publishes his oration on the dignity of man, and he's kind of for hermetic and mystic ideas, and he's saying, hey man, we're all the same, we're all just kind of trying to find our own path to the same God here, but the Catholic Church just wouldn't have it. So this little revolution, this kind of hermetic revolution that Giovanni kind of got started during the Renaissance, it it was strong, and it was powerful, and it made a difference, but then it got pushed underground for two reasons. One, as you can imagine, uh, church persecutions, right? Because they're pretty much the government at the time. And secondly, during the 17th and 18th centuries, that's when the enlightenment, enlightenment kicks off, and logic and reason become kind of the cornerstone of Western thought. And so a lot of these religions and spiritual ideas... Um, that were driven underground first by the church now become scorned in the face of these scientific and technological advances. And to show this shift of going from uh, the religious and spiritual and uh, I guess now would be called pseudoscience, um, the, the person that represents the shift from that to um, just science and logic and reason and what can be proven and to suppress everything else um, is a guy by the name of John D. And John D., um, he's kind of living right at the cusp of this shift from the Renaissance to the Enlightenment, and he really gets caught in the middle of it. John D. was a hermeticist and a, a mathematician and an astrologer and an alchemist and a philosopher, and he was an advisor to Queen Elizabeth during the late 1500s. Now, during this time, John Dee, he was, like, renowned among scholars because he had one of the largest personal libraries, he was wealthy, he had friends in high places, and even though he had practiced this hermetic art and hermetic studies that's kind of getting snuffed out at the time, he was actually a pretty accomplished um, scientist, and he was kind of well-respected to people in those fields. So, um, John Dee... On the occult hermetic side of things, he conducted these mystic rituals and he said that he could speak to angels and he even wrote down this alphabet that was supposed to be angel language. Um, he kind of had it all because he could practice all his hermetic stuff and he was friends with the queen and he was well respected. Uh, but as the world moved closer towards 
reason and logic, John D. was soon labeled an outcast and a heretic and someone who was just crazy. Um, his library and his home end up getting uh, gets vandalized, and he died in poverty with little to nothing to his name and he get kicked out of the royal court the whole thing he was at the top and he just lost it all because the world was shifting now if someone that close to the queen of england could be ruined for practicing her medicism that really doesn't leave hope for anyone else at the time um but her medicism refuses to say die and it goes underground and it gives us one of the best literary devices the secret society. Seriously, if it wasn't for secret societies of the Enlightenment, um, Dan Brown would have absolutely no career today. So, when Hermeticism is driven underground during this time of logic and reason, uh, we see the formation of these secret societies and two very important secret societies for our purposes that kind of keeps Hermeticism alive during the Enlightenment are the Rosicrucians and the Freemasons. Let's talk about the Rosicrucians first, because they're kind of like the role model to the um, Freemasons as we know them now. Rosicrucians, um, they were introduced to the world, you could say, and some would say that they were created between 1606 and 1660 in Germany when these three anonymous manifestos were published. Now, these manifestos said that there had been the secret society existing in the shadows for some time, and that now they were coming forward to usher humanity into this new era of peace, happiness, and prosperity using um, this ancient knowledge and wisdom that the group had acquired. The manifestos said that this secret society had been started by a guy named Christian Rosencrantz, who was born in 1378, and he was this uh, world traveler who studied under these ancient masters of esoteric knowledge. Now, keep that in mind because that little story there is going to come back again. So, when he returned from his travels, Rosencrantz shares this knowledge with only a small circle of friends, and they became known as the Fraternity of the Rose Cross. Now, the legend says that there was only ever eight members of the group at a time, and they had... Um, they all had to be doctors, and they had to be willing to help anyone who needed help without uh, ever charging them, with no cost. So when one member, um, also the legend went, when one member died, they or before they died, <laughs> they had to find someone else to be their replacement, right? That was part of the whole contract, and there was only ever eight members. Now, this caused... Um, a huge stir at the time because people were excited to hear that there was this group of basically um, superheroes who wanted to save and better humanity. I mean, can you imagine these guys were like um, the Avengers if the Avengers had esoteric powers that they learned from these ancient masters of the world. But for all their insight and mystic powers, uh, the Rosicrucians really picked a shitty time to reveal themselves to the world because the enlightened people of the area were making it their job to squash out all these mystic and superstitious and spiritual uh, mumbo-jumbo, and the Thirty Years' War was kicking off, and Europe was in this huge state of instability. Conveniently, though, uh, when the Rosicrucians started to feel the heat, 
it was rumored that they had traveled to the east for greener pastures. And it was also speculated and believed to this day that there was not even a Christopher Rosencrantz or a secret mystical group of Jedi doctors who was out there to save the world and that the manifestos were published by some average Joe and his buddies. However, the story of the Rosicrucians was so great that many spinoff groups began to form calling themselves some variation of Rose Cross or Rosicrucian. These groups preserved the ideas found in the manifestos, much of which was hermetic ideology. Oh yeah, and I, I should probably mention this too. One of the manifestos on the cover, uh, it was the symbol of John D. So, you know, the whole full circle thing. Uh, but these spinoff groups had a great, great impact on society, and they influenced um, our next special secret society. You know them, you love them, the Freemasons. So by the time we reach the Enlightenment, the Freemasons have been around uh, for a long time. During the 14th century, the Freemasons were essentially the union of stonemasons, just how you would think of a workers' union today. They regulated the qualifications for laborers, and they negotiated with clients and authorities. Now, if we consider the time in which uh, the Freemasons are existing, it's clear why stonemasons are important and they have considerable power. First, this was the time that if you wanted a structure built that could repel invasions and withstand the test of time, you built it out of stone. Secondly, the Catholic Church was like, actively building structures that would simulate heaven and make uh, Catholic followers all in the presence and power of God and the church and to be completely overwhelmed by these uh, structures. I mean, these churches were like the first ever special effects. So given these two reasons, uh, we can say that stonemasons were some pretty important people and they had significant ties to the Catholic church, which is like the most powerful organization ever at the time. Well, it's no surprise then that the stonemasons' little origin story was that they had hidden esoteric knowledge uh, to build Solomon's temple, and that the builders of Solomon temp Solomon's temple used this esoteric knowledge, and they passed it down among the other members of this stonemason society. Now, where things really took off for Freemasons, and where they started to become... Uh, more of a secret society as we know it and the organization that we know them are know them as today was in 1770 1717 when the first grand lodge of freemasons was formed and they started uh allowing average joes who had nothing to do with mason work to kind of join their group it was then that freemasons became a group focused on helping men seek personal and alternative paths to god and to become better humans. That became their goal instead of negotiating stone contracts. Hermeticism became preserved in Freemasonry because many of their rites and rituals were based on hermetic rituals, and their continual um, symbolism and use of like geometric patterns and mathematics for ritualistic purposes just absolutely screams hermeticism. Now, depending on who you ask, you'll get a different answer about Freemasonry relationship with occult ideologies, but we can't ignore that the group played a part in the preservation of hermetic ideas, and therefore they preserved an alternative and scientific path to God 
outside of just a regular old church atmosphere. Now, although secret societies played a big part in Hermeticism's survival during the 17th and 18th century, they're not solely responsible. Ironically, Hermetic ideas survived the Enlightenment because of the same folks who were trying to stamp it out, or, or one of those groups of folks, scientists and natural philosophers. You see, while the collective and rational mind that dominated much of the population was bent on snuffing out irrational and unprovable belief systems, it struggled with Hermeticism. Hermeticism was different than other beliefs of the time because it relied on science, research, and methodology, much like natural philosophers or scientists of the era. For this reason, you know, many thinkers of the Enlightenment who brought us these earth-shattering revelations about the world around us and who developed technologies essential to our evolution as humans practiced and experimented with hermetic ideas. Isaac Newton, for example, he practiced and studied uh, hermeticism. His writings tell us that he was a uh, practicing alchemist and an astrologer. He also, um, a major goal of his was to discover the philosopher's stone, which is this thing that can turn lead into gold, and to um, discover the elixir of life. He also studied and sketched Solomon's temple in hopes of like acquiring some hermetic knowledge, and he even tried to decode the Bible so he could predict the end of the world. So, well, a lot of these scientists, guys, and Isaac Newton's just one example, you know, a lot of these folks um, practiced hermetic rituals and hermetic ideas. Um, but while they were trying to kind of snuff it out, they couldn't really turn a blind, they couldn't turn a blind eye to it. And in many ways, hermeticism kind of helped us produce um, much of our knowledge of the natural world. But, you know, for all their hard work and dedication, uh, the stronghold that rational thinkers held over the world didn't last indefinitely. And by the 19th century, another way of living began to push back. During this time, folks became exhausted of the scientific and rational and um, the explosion of industrialization that had been created in the wake of the Enlightenment. People wanted to return to nature and to simple living. They wanted to bring back emotions and feelings. They wanted to bring back the magic of real living and exploring the unanswerable with heart. In short, people wanted to be human again, not calculating cold machines that they felt like they had been created or made into from the Renaissance. Because of this shift in consciousness, there was a huge revival in all things spiritual and occult. Now, this occult revival is really unique because for the first time in history, hermetic and occult ideas start to permeate all social classes. Now, at this time, people were more educated than ever, and with print resources being ready available, anybody could go out and pick up a book on hermeticism and just begin practicing on their own. And it shouldn't be a surprise to us that during this era, um, a book was published that broke down the key elements of hermetic philosophy and practice. This book is called The Kybalion, and it's now considered um, an essential text of hermeticism, and it helped restore and build interest in hermetic ideology and the occult. The late 19th and early 20th century proved to be a time of like huge exponential growth for hermeticism, 
and hermetic ideas because so many folks were educated and they could study the occult independently. A whirlwind of hermetic ideas began spreading around the world and this whirlwind planted hermetic seeds and soon groups based on hermetic ideas began sprouting up all over the world. Now each of these groups had their own ideas and they had their own approaches to hermeticism and each kind of put their own spin on occult ideology. Um, but the two most important groups of this time that are crucial to the development of hermeticism and its preservation are the Theosophical Society and the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Both of these groups really lay the groundwork for occult studies as we know them today. So let's do Theosophy first. The driving force behind the Theosophical Society and its creation was a Ukrainian woman named Helen Blotsky. And I know I'm probably butchering her last name. But we're going to roll on. As a child, Vlatsky, um, she traveled the world frequently, and she was very well educated, and she was interested in esoteric ideas um, pretty much her whole life. She started really getting interested in them as a teenager. So in 1894, while she's traveling the world, um, she says that she encountered these beings who she called the masters of ancient wisdom. Now, Vlatsky maintains that these masters sent her to Tibet to develop her own spiritual and psychic powers. But before I go even further, i got to mention two things. First, um, we got to remember these masters of ancient wisdom. Because number one, they kind of sound a lot like those folks who inspired the Rosicrucians. And we're going to see them again and this kind of story get told again in other hermetic and esoteric traditions. Secondly, let's remember that around this time when the occult revival is in full swing, um, this is the time of high spiritualism. So this is when rich folks all around the world are having seances in their house and they're hiring mediums and psychics to read their fortune. So for most of the world, occult ideas are somewhat of just a sideshow attraction without much real substance or philosophy. Okay, so after Blotsky builds her powers, uh, with these masters of the universe, she makes her way to New York where spiritualism is in full swing. So Blotsky perfectly uh, fits this scene and she uses her abilities and her knowledge to kind of build a reputation for herself as a spiritualist in the community. However, she thinks that spiritualism doesn't really go far enough and so she starts writing this book called Isis Unveiled. Now, no, it's not the Isis, this is what you're thinking of. But it lays out the foundational beliefs and philosophies of what we what would become known as theosophy. Now, according to Blotsky, she wrote this book under the guidance of another entity, and that the ideas proposed in this book are a synthesis of science, religion, and philosophy. The book and the religion of theosophy that followed were unique for two big reasons, especially in regards to spiritual and philosophical ideas um, and their development. First, Vlasky put, puts out there that theosophy is really a reviving of ancient wisdom that underlies and connects all world religions, and that those religions are just their own misinterpretations of this universal wisdom. Um, this is a pretty radical idea that embeds itself into our social consciousness and becomes a cornerstone 
for many religious and philosophical ideas in the future. Secondly, Theosophy is the first Western religion that incorporates Hindu and Buddhist elements. In many ways, it's not your buddy Tim you should be thanking. You should be thanking Helen Vlatsky for that hot yoga class you go to every week. Because Theosophy laid the foundation for Eastern practices in the West and became a front-runner for the New Age movement that developed in the 1970s. Now, if Theosophy is the parent of the happy-go-lucky, our religions are all connected, peace-love, flower-power, right-handed path, white magic side of Hermeticism, then the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn could be called the parent of the selfish, in the sperm myself, I want power, left-handed path, or black magic side of Hermeticism. Now, don't jump to conclusions and let your mind run away with stereotypes here. The Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn wasn't this satanic cat-sacrificing group that your mom told you about, but they were the launch pad for some pretty extreme variants of Hermetic practice. But I guess extreme is all subjective, right? The group was founded by these three guys in 1887, and their names were William Woodman, Samuel Mathers, actually the grandpa to Marshall Mathers, Nope, nope, he wasn't. Just kidding. And William Westcott. But the guy that we uh, mostly need to be concerned with is Westcott because he's the driving force behind uh, the Golden Dawn's development. Now, I should probably mention here that all three of these guys were Freemasons and they were all members of the Societas Rosicruciana in Anglia. Hopefully I said that right. Also known as the SRIA, which is one of the spin-off groups of the original Rosicrucians. Anyway, the origin story of the Golden Dawn sounds pretty similar to the other origin stories we already heard. It all started out with these documents called the Cipher Manuscripts. Now, our main guy, Westcott, said that these manuscripts were passed down to him by uh, some other guy who was not interested in them. But upon receiving these manuscripts, Westcott decoded them and discovered that they had been written by this wise adept named Anna Springle, hopefully I'm saying that right, whose contact information was contained in the cipher. How convenient! According to Westcott, he immediately contacted Anna, and the two began sharing letters. Apparently, Anna was a prominent Rosicrucian, I'm guessing an OG Rosicrucian, and through their letters, she told Westcott how to contact these powerful supernatural entities called Secret Chiefs. Now, does that remind us of... Yep, it's Theosophy's Masters of the Universe, Masters of Ancient Wisdom. So, with Anna's help and approval, Westcott and his buddies started this Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, and it became a pretty big deal. Um, their main goal was to contact the Secret Chiefs, and the Golden Dawn uh, grew, and it attracted some pretty famous people who became members. The two most famous people that were members of the Golden Dawn were the poet William Butler Yeats and Aleister Crawley, who we're going to talk about in a few minutes. But for all the success of the Golden Dawn, in 1891, the group encountered a big problem. Anna suddenly stopped writing to the group, and, and they were on their own to find the secret chiefs. Now, where things took a turn uh, was when the group started infighting. Now, I should probably mention that it's been concluded that Anna Springle was not a real person, and that in all likelihood, Westcott just made her up. But the infighting started for several reasons. First, 
Westcott had to leave the order uh, for reasons unclear, but it's speculated that um, his profession, his employer, found out that he was part of this group and his livelihood was threatened because, you know, most people around this time are still freaked out by secret occult societies. The order uh, was then left in the leadership of Mr. Mathers, and he proved himself not to be a very good leader. A lot of members of the order found his decisions regarding a particularly rebellious and extreme member uh, who was causing a whole bunch of ruckus. Of course, that member's name is Aleister Crowley. Now, Aleister Crowley's influence on Hermeticism and the occult and esoteric ideology was and continues to be profound. He shaped the common idea and image of the occult. Yes, all those stories that your parents told you about occult kidnapping children and sacrificing rabbits to Satan, those stereotypes would not be around with Aleister Crowley. He gave the ignorant masses something to fear. He took on the persona of the devil, both figuratively and literally. But, if you're a practicing hermetic, or you follow any belief system related to the occult, you can't deny that Aleister Crowley took the practice to the next level. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. Let's back up to the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn and start the story of Crawley there. So Crawley was a member of the Golden Dawn, and he's rising through the ranks. However, for all of his achievements, he is disliked by many of the Order for his cavalier attitude and his radical lifestyle. Um, Crawley was openly bisexual He experimented with mind-altering drugs regularly. He was an extreme hedonist, and later in life, he proclaims himself to be both the Antichrist and Satan himself. Now, as you could imagine, for decent folks at the time, they're pretty taken back by Mr. Crawley. Eventually, Mathers did everything he could to protect Crawley and help him rise to the ranks, but Crawley is forced out and he goes on to start his own religion and a cop group called the Lima in the early 1900s. Now, after listening to this entire episode, how would you guess that Crawley founded his religion? Well, if you guessed that he conceived the religion under the guidance of a spiritual or other dimensional being, then you are correct. According to Crawley, This other dimensional being that will later be identified as his guardian angel named Iwas dictated to him the Book of the Law, which would become the foundational text for Thelema. Now, Thelema is still practiced today, and it has had significant impact on other esoteric and fringe religions like Wicca, Neopaganism, Satanism, and ironically enough, Scientology. But we're going to circle back to old L. Ron Hubbard at the end of this episode, so you just hang in there. So, after groups like Theosophy, Golden Dawn, and Thelema emerge, hermetic ideas really become, for the first time in history, a mainstay of human, religious, and spiritual exploration. These groups lead the way for hermetic ideas all the way through the 1960s, when Wicca, Neopaganism, New Age, and Transcendental Meditation, all of which were directly influenced by the groups we discussed in this episode, became more popular and more accessible to those involved in the counterculture movement. Uh, These groups 
of course, continue to be the torchbearers of Hermeticism today. But between 1960 and today, uh, Hermetic and occult groups have faced a really bumpy road. The destructive and the manipulative cults of the 1970s give all the people of the time who are spiritual explorers on the fringe of society a really bad name. And that unfolds into the satanic panic of the 1980s that convinced the masses that a mysterious uh, occult practitioners exist in the shadows just waiting to kidnap children and sacrifice them to Zul. Uh, of course, this satanic panic all turned out to be, for the most part, utterly ridiculous rambling from this fear-mongering media. Thankfully today, there's less suspicion of people who practice occult religions, but the stereotype definitely still exists. For many folks, hermetic and occult teachings are just another way of life, um, and their beliefs in those teachings really define who they are as an individual, just as your beliefs define you. I think it's real easy for a lot of us to write off occult practices as just mumbo-jumbo, because that's the easy path, and popular culture just kind of provides that for us. But if exploring Hermeticism over the past few weeks has taught me anything, it's that following Hermetic and occult teachings aren't crazy or dangerous or a threat to society. They're just ways to find an answer to life's greatest questions. And the people who use those ideas to answer those questions are just like you and me. They're just trying to figure it out all the same. So... In part three of Hermeticism, we will go over the beliefs and ideology and the philosophy of the religion or the philosophy or belief system or whatever you want to call it. And we will wrap up Hermeticism. Till then, be hopeful, stay positive, and tell somebody that you love them. Now, if you're still here. I got a really, I, I thought it was a pretty interesting story about Scientology's connection to the occult and Hermeticism. As far as stories, or origin stories of religions go, I think Scientology's is pretty interesting. And learning about this connection really just added another layer to them. Alright, so I'm going to spin it for you real quick and then you can go. Alright, so... L. Ron Hubbard, the guy who started Scientology, he was a writer, all right? And he wrote, I think, more books than anyone ever in history. He just spit them out, and a lot of those were uh, science fiction books, all right? So, um, he's a writer, and he sees this advertisement in this paper by this guy named Jack Parsons uh, for rooms to rent. And this advertisement is Jack Parsons only wants the Bohemian group there. He only wants artists and writers and free thinkers and open-minded people. So Elrond, of course, is like, hey, sign me up, right? Well, Jack Parsons uh, was a member of Thelema, and he was actually uh, the leader of one of Aleister Crowley's lodges in California. And so Jack and Crowley have this ongoing communication with one another. And Jack Parsons is pretty high-level in Thelema and the occult and magic rituals and things like that. So when Elron Hubbard shows up, Jack Parsons kind of immediately gets um, attracted to him. 
and he thinks that L. Ron Hubbard has this huge potential in the occult, and he just feels this energy coming off of him. And so he even writes to Crawley, and he tells him about who L. Ron Hubbard is, and Crawley's like, wow, he, he could be a very important guy, you know, in our community. So, Jack Parsons kind of takes L. Ron Hubbard under his wing, and they start to do this ritual called Babylon Working. Now, what this ritual was supposed to do, it was this sex magic ritual. And remember, by the time we get to Thelema, this is like the um, left-handed path, or I guess a lot of people would say black magic path, right? So, uh, Jack Parsons is doing this sex magic ritual, and uh, he is trying to summon this goddess of Thelema called Babylon, right? And he has L. Ron Hubbard there, and L. Ron Hubbard there is supposed to be like taking records, and he's supposed to be kind of like this... Um, other psychic um, person in the room to help with the ritual. And it's ongoing, ongoing, ongoing. Now, after all this stuff has happened and they've went through the whole cult thing together, and I guess uh, the Babylon working was not very successful, but some say it was. Some say after Babylon working, that's when people started seeing UFOs in the United States. But I'm getting off track. Okay, so after Babylon working failed, uh, Hubbard has this idea he and Parsons, and Parsons' wife, whose name was Sarah, should go into business together because, you know, they've already been through all this occult stuff together and they've been living together and they're all great friends. And L. Ron Hubbard's like, hey, we should dump in all of our life savings. Now, I should probably mention that Jack Parsons is a renowned uh, rocket scientist. Warner Von Braun, who was labeled as the most important person in rocketry, said that Jack Parsons should have that label. Jack Parsons is the reason that we had most of our um, space explorations and most of our successful rocket launches, especially in the um, mid-20th century. All right, huge, huge guy and, and very wealthy. So Parsons put in all this money. Hubbard puts in his. Whatever Sarah's got, she throw in the pot. So Hubbard's like, hey, what we're going to do is uh, me and Sarah, we're going to go to Miami and we're going to buy some yachts. And we're going to sell them back to the West Coast. And we're going to sell them for profit. Jack's like, what a great idea. So Hubbard and Sarah take off to Miami. Now, what Jack did not know is that Hubbard and Sarah had been having an affair. And that Hubbard was secretly in love with her. And really what he had planned to do was sell around the world and get new material for his books. And just leave Parsons in a sham. So Parsons get on gets on to this as Hubbard and uh, Sarah are going to Miami, and he eventually tracks them down. Hubbard and Sarah actually get their ship out of port, but a storm drives them back. Parsons presses charges, but all that comes out of it is that L. Ron Hubbard has to write Jack Parsons, or all he did was Jack write Jack Parsons an IOU for like $2,500. Parsons had to sell off a whole bunch of his assets. It really hurt him. Uh, their friendship was broken. Elrond Hubbard ended up going on and marrying Sarah, and then he starts Scientology. Wow. Crazy, crazy, crazy connections. Until next time, my friends. Hope you enjoyed that story. Bye-bye.